Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 19. We're only going to do one verse today, though. Maybe two. Verse 10, maybe 11. We'll have to see. Verse 10 is kind of Paul's uh, summarizing thesis for the rest of the letter, we'll call it, okay? It's a a thesis that he will return to throughout these these chapters, these coming chapters. For example, we see him do so in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 15. And it is there in chapter 3 that Paul addresses once again the Corinthians' jealousy and strife regarding one another. How many of you know that jealousy and strife regarding the person sitting next to you in church is not a good thing? In our assessment and interpretation of the text, we need to first understand the context of the culture. The context of the culture at this particular time in history and in this part of the world. Namely, that people regularly evaluated a speaker or speakers by their rhetoric and people at this time in history would choose their favorite speakers and teachers to follow and they would defend them vigorously. And by the way, we will define rhetoric here as effective and persuasive speech that sets forth an ideology, okay? Rhetoric is effective and persuasive speech that sets forth an ideology. Now, this could obviously set the stage, this type of culture, what I just described, set the stage for divisions. Um, Given the many different ideologies being propagated at this time in history in this part of the world. And in this vein, division, per se, could be, and many times was, more so than not, chic or vogue. It was what was in. Okay? Now, please keep in mind, we have to keep this in mind because of the culture we live in, that they had no TV, they had no internet, okay? Didn't exist at this time, neither did telephones. And so, being influenced by a speaker and aligning oneself with their rhetoric was a very common way for one to express themselves, which is why they defended their rhetoric so hard. Today, this might be akin to someone listening to their favorite authors or um, bloggers on their Facebook page. You know, you might put something on your Facebook page that You like this author, you like these types of movies, you like these types of books. Okay, people do that on their about section of their page. So this type of culture consisted of all sorts of 
divisions among people who all thought they were in the quote-unquote no, even if they were siding with different philosophies or fringe beliefs propagated by different talking heads, okay? And lest we think today that we are above such primitive behavior, we actually are not. We've, in my opinion, taken it to a whole new level today. On one hand, today, a certain student might choose a certain university to attend because that particular school may either employ a certain professor who adheres to a certain ideology that this certain student has a newfound interest in. Or a lifetime, perhaps. It's not newfound interest in. Or on the other hand, a different student or group of students may want to sit under the tutelage of a certain department head in the study of cutting-edge medical research, economics, language, the arts, etc. People in general, they pick their favorites for whatever academic discipline they wish to pursue. I've known students who, many students, who had a mandatory class that had to be taken for the completion of their degree, but because that class wasn't available with a specific professor that they wanted, they would postpone taking that class until it was able to be scheduled with their favorite professor at a later date, different semester. But it doesn't begin or end with academics, okay? <clears throat> it's across the board throughout the game of life. For example, some people watch, I say this without exaggeration, well, maybe a little bit, 200 Jordan Peterson videos a week. How many of you know who Jordan Peterson, talking head, professor on online from Canada. Very conservative, okay? Might watch Jordan Peterson videos. Uh, and, and when they do, when people are that into a speaker, they're that into an ideology, you'll see them dress like that person. They will read the same books that that person recommends. They'll even go as far as to eat their hero's favorite foods or drink their favorite wine. That's why endorsements, product endorsements by athletes are such a huge multi-million dollar business. If Shaquille O'Neal eats Domino's pizza, then a hundred thousand people who don't even care that much for pizza will eat Domino's pizza because Shaq eats it. And if it's not Jordan Peterson or Shaquille O'Neal, it might be Joe Rogan, uh, Tucker Carlson, or a couple of you might even be Joy Behar fans. I'm kidding. I hope none of you are Joy Behar fans, but okay. That was my attempt at humor. You get the picture. So my whole point is, let's not get 
too, let's not be too hard on these Corinthians who wanted to be a follower of Paul or a follower of Cephas or a follower of Apollos, okay? And I'm not condoning that what they did isn't wrong. I am simply pointing out that there's nothing new under the sun to see here, okay? And we've all been guilty of this at one time or another in our lives, haven't we? Okay? Paul begins by telling them what he has heard about them. That quarreling among them has caused divisions and rivalries in their Christian community, which obviously wasn't a good thing for the church. Paul makes it clear that he is commenting on specific reports that have come to him by, quote, some of Chloe's people, end quote, verse 11. We don't know much about Chloe, okay? We assume that she had a prominent um, stance in the church and amongst the people. She might have been a deaconess. There were there was popular for there to be deaconesses at the time. She may have been a wealthy uh, landowner who opened up her home to church meetings. We don't know. Paul probably, I'm convinced, mentions her simply to let the church know that he is responding not to rumors or hearsay, but to a direct report from trustworthy church members. Okay? Tim, would you turn that back down? Or I should say, so that it goes off. Thanks. In verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just take that part first, okay? I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the tenth time in ten verses that he uses Christ's name. Ten times, ten verses. He uses Christ's name to once again etch into the Corinthians' brains that they are part of a Christ community and therefore should display Christ's character, his image, his behavior. Their behavior negatively affects the public image and reputation of Jesus. They are Christ's community in Corinth and therefore Christ's representatives, just like we are. But, as I said, their current behavior seems to imitate something altogether different. Is there anyone within the sound of my voice who hasn't at one time or another been guilty of this? We've all been guilty of it. We can all think of times when our behavior amongst other Christians 
didn't live up to a Christ-like character or image. This can be especially damaging when we act this way in front of new or younger Christians. Remember how we studied why it's so important not to let a weaker brother stumble because of us exercising our liberty in Christ. Okay, the correct response when we do this, when we sin in this way, is to first repent if necessary, okay? Explain to the people in our company that uh, we haven't, explain to them that we haven't represented our Christ the way we should have represented our Christ in front of them and that the next time we will aim to set a better example. Paul goes on in verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that all of you agree. Paul frames his urgent plea to the Corinthians as a purpose statement. The call to agreement in in Greek literally means to speak the same. That's what the Greek is here, to speak the same. This doesn't refer to doctrinal agreement, okay, but instead to the recipient's common testimony about Christ. This is why it's so important to study the Greek. Common testimony about Christ. This is about behavior. It's about how we act. The divisions between these groups were not so much caused by disagreements. Now, this is very important. They weren't so much caused by disagreements among individual members as they were about focusing on the wrong things, focusing on the wrong stuff. That's what this is about. They had allowed the norms of secular Corinth to influence the thinking of the church. One more time. They had allowed the norms of a secular city of Corinth to influence the thinking of the church. We are so stinking guilty of this today in America. We take our eyes off Christ and we allow secular society to influence our thinking and even our sermons and teaching in our churches. We follow men. We are so quick as evangelical Americans to always have our eyes peeled for the next bandwagon pile of garbage coming down the pike in the name of Christianity. How much damage have we done? We've we've done a lot. I've seen it firsthand and have counseled dozens and dozens of people over the years. Their marriage counseling and individual counseling where they have allowed this ridiculous bandwagon stuff to get a hold of not only their own spiritual life, but their entire family. Just in the past two decades, we have allowed Satan and that's who it is, to dupe us with the age-old stupidity of Christian deconstructionism. 
Now, for those that don't know, you might not know or be um, up on what deconstructionism is within Christianity. It's when someone deconstructs the orthodox tenets of the faith. So the orthodox tenets of the Christian faith, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, second coming, okay? These are the things that our faith, the pillars of our faith built on, all right? So when we allow people to come in and deconstruct those things, rip them apart, the very foundations of our faith, it's very, very dangerous. But in the past 20 years, we've allowed Satan to dupe us in this way, and he's done it, he's done it for thousands of years, but we've let men like, and I named them, I named them once before in this run of names, very similar. I named them because if I don't name them, you're not going to know who they are, and you're not going to be able to look out for them. And they are all still writing and putting out books, and they are all still speaking, preaching, and teaching, okay? So we've let the deconstructionism of guys like Rob Bell, okay, Donald Miller, Brian McLaren, James Dunn, Leonard Sweet, Andy Stanley, and N.T. Wright. We've let them come into our pulpits and into our minds with their form of heretical bestsellers and deconstruct everything that we hold dear. We have allowed Tony Campolo and uh, Jim Wallace and Shane Claiborne, three other best-selling authors, to do eisegesis with our scriptures instead of exegesis and try to sell us on the social gospel. It's not the gospel that you think it is. It's not the gospel you were raised to believe in. It's not the gospel that your church teaches. It's different. We're, we're so smart that we picked up on it. You're so dumb that you didn't. So now we're going to tell you what it really means. It's the social gospel. Okay? We need to agree. Remember the Greek? We need to agree to the, okay, not a, but the common testimony of who Christ is and why he came in human flesh. So many of our churches today either choose to dismiss what was once our common testimony of who Christ is, or they have chosen to pervert our common testimony of who Christ is and make Jesus something that he has not only never been, but never will be. And they've done it in the name of popularity and notability. Period. We need to guard against the plurality of deceit, I will call it. That the secular culture repackages again and again and that Satan so often uses... To, and this is how he does it. He finesses his way very gently into our churches and changes our doctrine. Paul told the Corinthians in verse 10 that they should all agree, yet today many churches actually pride themselves in disagreements. Oh, we don't need the Old Testament, Andy Stanley says. Prides himself in it. 
He's defending it. He'll fight you for it. Okay? And these are the people with the best-selling books in evangelical Christendom, not only in America, but around the world. Their books are being printed in other languages. What does Paul say next? He says, that there be no divisions among you. The Greek word here for divisions is schismata. It's where we get our word schism. Schisms in the church, division in the church, okay? Do you remember us talking from this pulpit many times, uh, Scott and Steve and I, about the great schism of the church, which took place in the year 1054 when the, when the Roman Western church split and with the Eastern Orthodox Church, and still today, you've got Rome and you've got Greek. Well, now Greek, Russian, and, and European, but still Western and Eastern Christianity. Then Paul says, be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. This is still verse 10. Be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. The Greek word for that phrase, okay, is, help me if I butcher this, Jason, uh, keratismoni, keratismoni, does that sound right? Yeah, go with that. Okay. It's translated in the New American Standard, which is what we're using for 1 Corinthians, it's translated in the NASB as be complete, Okay. I think the NASB gets it wrong here. I think the NIV wins the prize. They translate this as having been knit together in the same mind. Okay? So not made complete in the same mind and judgment, but but being knit together in the same mind and judgment. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, who gives a flying fig in the woods, Mike? as to how this Greek word is translated. And that would be a viable question if that's you asking, just because it's you asking. So why does it matter? It matters because the Greek connotation carries the idea of a sense of restoration. Very important word. It carries a sense of restoration to the context. The thought here is not about being complete in the same mind. It's about restoring what was already agreed upon as the same in times past. Let me say that one more time, okay? The thought here is not about being complete in the same mind. It's about restoring what was already agreed upon as the same in times past. So in other words, we had it right before, and let's restore, let's knit together and restore. Okay, it, one more thing. It's a putting things back to the place and order in which they were originally intended. I don't want to get ahead of myself. This sense of being knit Knitted together in origin of order is conveyed with this same Greek word. Check this out. In Mark chapter 1 verse 19, where Jesus sees the brothers, James and John, 
mending or restoring their fishing nets to their originally created order. It's used for mending this word, fishing nets. So in other words, you had this fishing net, and it does what all fishing nets do. It started to break in points. You get a large haul fish, breaks in points, and it tears. And they were restoring it. They were mending it to what they all had agreed upon was the best net for fishing. One of them didn't rise up and say, hey, well, you know, I know we've done it that way for 52 years, but I got a new way that I think we should do because they already knew that only one way worked. They had tested all the other ways, and so they were restoring it back to what they knew worked. That's the Greek connotation here in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, remember, in the book of Genesis, the same word is used to describe God's created order in the universe prior to the fall. The Greek word, and I'm going to read a definition to you, okay? The Greek word conveys the fundamental idea of putting something into its appropriate, optimal condition so it will function as it was intended. It conveys the idea of making whole by fitting together to order and arrange properly. When applied to that which is weak and defective, it denotes setting right, setting right what has gone wrong, to restore to a former condition, whether mending broken nets or setting broken bones. By the way, I did not put the mending broken nets in there. That was in there um, in the Greek dictionary that I looked at. So, in other words, this is what God intended from the beginning, Corinthians, that which God caused among you when you first received the gospel, that should again be the reality among you now. There should be no divisions among you. That's what Paul is saying here when he refers to the Corinthians as being perfectly united with no divisions among you. Go back and restore that which you first knew and be knit together in the agreement of your minds, of your way of thinking. Okay? As a matter of application, we would do well to regularly examine our thinking in this regard, just to make sure we are seeing the gospel message the way we have from the beginning. Okay? Take it from me, folks. One thing that I've learned is that people start going south when the meaning of the gospel gets out of sorts in their pretty little heads. Just the meaning of the gospel. That's where Satan starts to get things out of sort. If someone is speaking in the pulpit or on a podcast or even on TV and they start getting away from what you've been taught from the beginning concerning the gospel, then my advice to you is to run. Just run. Change the channel. Like Paul in Galatians, shout anathema. 
curse, curse it from the rooftops. When they hand you a book about the liberation gospel or liberation theology and say, man, this is what the gospel's really about. You got to read this, man. Run away. Okay. When your Christian brother or sister sends you some links to some websites and says, hey, I didn't have any idea what Jesus and the gospel was all about, Jason, until a friend turned me on to this stuff about the social gospel. It's awesome. It's about feeding the poor, clothing the naked, doing exactly what Jesus said to do. No, it's not. Run. When you see this mega church growing by leaps and bounds, and it's just so unbelievably cool because they make the gospel so real. You gotta listen to this stuff, Pastor Mike. Okay, you gotta listen to the sermons. This guy's so cool. He actually wrote a book about the Song of Solomon. I mean, who does that? What pastor writes a book about the Song of Solomon? I mean, man, the church I grew up in, I've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Song of Solomon. Dude, this this sermon series and this book, the pastor talks about the Song of Solomon being all about sex. Well, it's within a marriage, of course, but he talks about how it's all about sex and how the scriptures use sex to show why a wife is supposed to submit to her husband in the bedroom, dude. Can you believe that? It's all right there in the Bible. Run. That book's actually been put out. It was put out by Mark Driscoll. And it's heresy. All of those conversations that I just spouted off as examples are real. They're real things um, that have been said to me, actually, and other pastors that I know, and on more than one occasion. And because of um, so-called pastors like these, because of the heretical movements they have caused, I've not only seen division in the body of Christ without, I'm sad to say, restoration, but I've seen the faith of men and women completely shipwrecked on the rocks of this garbage, and I have seen families, entire families, destroyed, many marriages broken. I'm thinking of a guy I know who not only uh, resigned from the pastorate, but wants to divorce his wife because of this type of stuff that he has bought into. I've seen more than a few pastors resign, more than a few go off the deep end because they've bought into things that they did not understand. But more importantly, they wouldn't listen to anybody who tried to teach them differently. We can only try so many times. And if they won't receive it, they won't receive it. Okay? So why, how do these things happen over and over again 
in evangelical Christendom? The answer is very simple. It happens because people who label themselves as Christians have never really understood the gospel. And I say that without reservation, without exaggeration. They never really, I know pastors who don't understand the gospel. They don't get it. They wouldn't know the real gospel if it walked up to them on the street and kicked them in the teeth. And because they don't know what is true, they fall for what is not. I told the story here one time. When on Amy's first day as a bank teller, when she was a bank teller years ago, first thing they do, take you in a conference room, throw a wad of money on the conference table, and shut the door and say, familiarize yourself with the money. And the whole exercise is, if you know what real money feels like, and if you know what real money smells like and looks like, you'll be able to see the counterfeit money like that. So they study what is true so that they can peg that which is false. It's the same thing here. Studying what the real gospel is is not something that they have done. And so they become duped by the first counterfeit bill that comes in the door. Okay? One of the common denominators in some of this stuff, and I, I touched on it briefly, is pastors teach this. I could send you the links. And they make disciples that teach this and propagate it. And that is that they treat their wives like garbage. They really do. In the name of submission. And it stinks in the nostrils of God. I've seen it firsthand. And these are pastors, many of them. Their wives are sad. Their wives never smile. At least that's been my experience. Um, they are put down. And the, the male in the relationship gets to do whatever he wants in the name of, uh, I'm the priest of my own home, and I make the decisions because God made me the head of the family. Okay? Um, I, see a, I, I saw a lot of this going on. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, in the Sovereign Grace Church movement, um, I had many students from, from Pitt and CMU who uh, were involved in leadership in the Sovereign Grace C.J. Mahaney uh, movement. And this is the, these are the kinds of things that were, were taught. And then later it was found that there was pedophilia going on in a couple of their churches, and it was hidden, buried by the leadership, yada, 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 same old story, same old song and dance, okay? My point, the divisions start as soon as the gospel's changed, as soon as things aren't being presented the way they've always been presented. They're being presented in a new way. That's where you have to put the red flag up and proceed with caution. Let us mend our nets, folks. 
and knit them together and be of the same mind and agree on what the gospel is. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. And I say that because we are not immune to this disease, church. We need to take precautions just like those in Scripture and those in the church throughout the ages, okay? But this isn't only for us. It's for everyone who has yet to hear the authentic good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't start out sounding like good news, I can assure you, as you will see in a minute. But I can assure you that in the end, you will find it to be very, very good news. The Bible teaches this, okay? We're not going to concentrate anymore the rest of the morning. We're not going to sermon. We're not going to concentrate on the bad. We're going to concentrate on the good. This is what we need to knit our nets together, mend our nets together and agree upon. And if we agree upon this, then we will not be so quick to fall for those other teachings that I mentioned a moment ago. All right. The Bible teaches, this is where it doesn't sound so good, but it really is, that you were born in original sin and that you and I are totally depraved. Okay? And because we're born into the lineage of Adam who sinned and died, we all sin and die. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. A lot of people miss this verse. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. His own likeness. Sinful Adam. This isn't prior to the fall Adam. In his own image. This is Adam's sinful, depraved nature image that Seth is born into. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. There isn't even one righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Here's my favorite. This will get your spirits going, lifted. Nothing good dwells in you. (laughs) Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Romans 10, 12. You may be thinking, well, you know, and I've had this said to me, I could retire if I got a dollar for every time somebody said this to me. Ah, You know, I'm basically a good person. I've never been arrested. I've never gotten any trouble. Well, the Bible says that if you obey every single law in the Bible and you break one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them. James chapter 2, verse 10. Have you ever lied? 
you're guilty of breaking all the law. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's stuff? Then you're guilty of breaking all the law. Or perhaps you are the person out there who has gotten into a lot of trouble, okay? I've gotten a lot of these too over the years, especially when you do street witnessing, street, street evangelism, okay? Maybe you are the person who has partied hard, participated in a lot of sexual promiscuity. Perhaps you have even conspired to blame others for the wrong that you did. Perhaps you've done a lot of drugs or even sold a lot of drugs. And as such, you add all these things up in your mind and you think there's no way that God's going to save a person like me. I know I'm going to hell because I deserve it. So I'm just going to bide my time and party because I know it's not going to end well for me. How many of you have ever heard that before? Well, if there were no Christ, you would have to bide your time and at your death, you would find out that it would be, uh, you'd be likely separated from God in outer darkness for all eternity. I'll give you that if there was no Christ. Whether you are a sinner to the 10th power or you've kept all the law throughout your entire life except one tiny part of it, you still stand guilty before a perfect God who requires a perfect sacrifice for your sins. Because God is just and righteous. He must execute just Judgment upon all who have sinned against him. To accept anything less would mean that he is not entirely just and he is not entirely righteous. I pray that everybody understands that. Without Christ, God's wrath rests upon you and is waiting to be executed against you on the day of your death. However, because God is not only a righteous judge, but he is also a merciful, loving father, he has provided a way out for you. He has sent his only son to take on human flesh and sacrifice himself on a cross after living that sinless life that was required to appease God's wrath and that you could not provide. You couldn't pull it off. And that sinless Lamb of God, without blemish, blemish, took on your sin and he took on the Father's wrath against you in your stead. That's what we call substitutionary atonement. He substituted himself for you and he took on your sentence and your punishment. The sinless Lamb of Almighty God was led to the slaughter It reminds me of when I uh, sold USDA industrial uh, chemicals and had to go into a lot of meatpacking plants. Guys who kill animals all day, um, they become hard. And when you go to those places, you, you could not only see, but you could feel 
the hardness of heart. You know, that's what that reminds me. Of. I've seen them kill lambs right before my eyes. I've seen how they do it. That's what reminds me of that. An innocent lamb led to the slaughter, dying the most horrid death known to man. And Jesus did it all for you so that if you believe in him, that's all you got to do. You believe in him. You believe in Christ and the sacrifice he became for you. And if you believe that he died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the grave, if you believe that, you will be saved. And instead of eternal damnation, you will have eternal life with Christ in heaven. That is the gospel. That is the good news. If you believe that, Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose from the grave on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, right now, interceding for you, then you will be saved from eternal separation from God in hell. If I or anyone else in this pulpit, why did I just run through that? If I or anyone else in this pulpit preaches anything other than what I just said, run to the door, get in your car as fast as you can and leave because that means we've compromised. The leadership has compromised. It would mean that things aren't in order as God originally intended. If we start deconstructing the long-held orthodox tenets of the Christian faith, like those deconstructionists that I named before, if we begin to tell you that Jesus didn't really mean that, he didn't really mean he was the only way to heaven, and if we start telling you that Mary wasn't actually a virgin when she became pregnant with Jesus, if we start telling you that the Jews didn't believe in hell or the concept of hell and neither did Jesus, he was just using the concept of hell as a metaphor. If we try to sell you on the notion of those things that everybody's going to heaven, Jesus died so that everyone, whether Jew or Greek or Muslim or Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormons, so they can all go to heaven. If I tell you that you don't need to read the Old Testament, and that all you need to do is concentrate on living the words of Jesus in red, social gospel, Tony Campolo, Jim Wallace, Shane Claiborne, okay? Run. Run. And if we teach you a new perspective on Paul, like N.T. Wright, who, who at one time was a brilliant theologian, um, if we start teaching you that Paul didn't actually mean justification by faith alone, that he meant something completely different, and we start deconstructing all of those, those solas, okay, saved by grace alone, scripture alone, we start deconstructing all those orthodox tenets 
call it the new perspective run. Paul is telling the Corinthians in our text that they need to be knit together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's telling them that there shouldn't be any quarreling or divisions among them, but instead they need to get back to that which they understood and had agreed upon in the first place, the real gospel. They need to mend their nets and in so doing restore things to their original order to the same way in which they received them in the beginning when the gospel was first preached to them. Let's pray.